0: I direct your attention this afternoon to the same passage of Scripture that we read in the morning hour, wherein we have Paul's explanation of the commemoration of the Lord's Supper. He writes, beginning with verse 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come." The Lord's Supper is the second great ordinance of the Church which was instituted by our Lord to be commemorated by his church in remembrance of his atoning work as set forth in the remembrance of his death. It is not always that the supper can be served. For example, when there is schism or division within the church body, For to do so is only to bring the displeasure and judgment of God upon a people. But when a body of believers are in harmony one with the other, and their fellowship is evident in their subjection to the word of God, it becomes one of the high points in our time of worship and in our fellowship and communion. Therefore, it becomes a feast of joy to be able to assemble, as we are here this afternoon, a body who has been tried together and pressed out of measure by tribulation, re-established in the name of Christ, to come together and commemorate the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, of whose body we are members and who has bound us together in mutual love one for the other. We saw in the morning hour that the supper is a remembrance, but it is also a profession of our faith. We do this in remembrance, recollection, recalling out of the word of God what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us in his atoning work. It is a profession to ourselves of that faith which we have and a declaration of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ unto others. But it is also a time of self-examination and preparation before the Lord in order to worship his name. The ordinance of the supper, then, is not something that we lightly come to that we simply take in hand, and is another formality of the church, as that which can be taken or left, but as a very vital part of the life of the church. Now, if one awaits a sense of worthiness in order to take of the communion of our Lord's broken body, he will never partake. For the more we examine ourselves, the more we turn up in way of unworthiness. We're not simply to take it in an unworthy manner, as these Corinthians were doing. Why, they were meeting and getting drunk at the table, rather than taking the wine in its moderation to commemorate the body of Christ. In their love feast, that was in association with the supper, they brought their own food and sat in their own corners and filled their own bellies. They didn't share that food with strangers that might have come in. And so he had to rebut these on the account of their practices. You can eat till you're filled at home, and so on. So we are to approach the supper in the way that God has ordained. And it is to be a time of careful scrutiny and examination, not of our neighbors, but of ourselves. John Owen said, There were many disorders fallen in this church at Corinth, commenting on this scripture, and that various ways, in schisms, and divisions, in neglect of discipline, in false opinions and particularly in a great abuse of the administration of this great ordinance of the Supper of the Lord. And though I do not, I dare not, I ought not to bless God for their sin, yet I bless God for his providence. Had it not been for their disorders, we had all of us been much in darkness as to all church ways. The correction of their disorders contains the principal rule for church communion and the administration of this sacrament that we have in the whole Scripture, which might have been hid from us but that God suffered them to fall. And that to fall uh, on purpose that through their fall, in them and by them, He might instruct His church in all ages to the end of the world, how critical we would have been of that church that God allowed so deep a fall that we might be instructed today in matters of such importance. And yet all these infirmities God allowed in his providence in order that we might be instructed as to the right way of the church in our worship of God in the correction of their errors. Now, it is in the correction of these abuses that were taking place there in the church at Corinth that the Apostle Paul calls for self-examination, and this self-examination is to be in preparation for the service itself. Therefore, if my message this afternoon serves as a guideline, For you to experientially examine yourself through this hour in preparation for the supper, then the message will have been well preached and well received and well served its purpose. In verse 28, Paul says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. To aid us in this exhortation, I shall show in the first place that there is set forth throughout the whole of Scripture that preparation is necessary for the celebration of any solemn worship, whether it be the Lord's table or whether it be any other aspect or phase of worship. There is always a time of preparation. A dear lady said to me, for example, this morning, with whom I wholeheartedly agreed, as she noticed uh, that there was a difference in Baptists and some other groups, in that Baptists hardly ever sit down for a quiet moment and pray prior to the beginning of the worship service. They're too busy gossiping. Now, she didn't say that. I'm saying that. But I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, The church sounds like a beehive prior to the time of worship. And you have to call people out of their fishing lakes and their hunting excursions and the latest scores of the ball game and so on and try to call them to worship in 20 minutes of singing and praying that they might be prepared for the preaching of the Word of God. Now that ought not to be so. There ought to be a time of quietness. There ought to be a time of communion with our Lord, asking God to prepare the heart for that which he has prepared for us on that day. Because we are most of the time too busy talking that if God should speak we wouldn't hear him, and therefore it would just pass right over. It is like a little fellow who attends this church. Uh, whose mother gave birth recently to a a, a boy child, and he said to one of the neighbors, my mother's going to have a little boy. And the neighbor said, well, how do you know she's going to have a little boy? He said, and I think he's five years old, he said, I asked God for a little boy. Well, she said, what did God say? Well, he said, I didn't hear him say anything. Well, if God did speak, we would be like him. We wouldn't hear God say anything. There is preparation in the worship of God. You don't walk out of the cold right into the presence of God. If you and I should visit England, if we were to have a hearing with a queen, we not only would be prepared for that hearing, told what to do and when to do, but we would walk into her presence with somewhat... Of an awe-stricken spirit. Now, we saw the Queen at a distance of about 12 feet when we were last in London, and uh, even that was somewhat of an excitement. But, my, to come into her presence for an audience, and she's only a woman, and she doesn't even have any authority over this nation. But when we come into the Lord's house, it's into the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords for a special hearing. For a special audience, for whereas God is omnipresent and we are always in his presence, it is here that we seek a very special presence with God our Lord. Therefore this should be a very special place, because although it is simply a building that could be converted into any sort of use whatsoever. It has been purchased and then sanctified through prayer and the Word of God as the assembly of God's people for the place of worship. We should always expect a special blessing. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say that he always dreaded missing church, even when he was ill, because he always expects that God sometime is going to do something he fears that it might be that day he misses. And then he would miss what God has done in bringing about revival or an awakening. Let me show you how we must prepare for solemn worship. Turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 35. The book of Genesis, chapter 35. Here we have Jacob called to the solemn task and ordinance of making an altar unto God. Beginning with verse 1, we read, And God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. Bethel, that means the house of God. El, God, Beth, house. And make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. Now there's the command, go make an altar. Then Jacob said unto his household, and all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you, and be clean, and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel. And I will make there an altar unto God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and was with me in the way which I went. And they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand, and all their earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them, and they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. You see, once Jacob prepared his house for this solemn occasion of building an altar to God, and the people put away their strange gods, the special presence of God with them struck terror in the hearts of the men of the cities, so that they dared not go out after them. What a protection! I believe that if we were prepared in our solemn worship, no enemy could touch us. No enemy could touch us. Now we see then that for this preparation, Jacob called for the removal of all strange gods. Anything that might replace the God of gods. This means then that in preparation and examination, that a peculiar and special preparation for any ordinance consists, first of all, in the removal of that from us which stands in peculiar opposition to that ordinance, whatever it be. Now, you see, the thing that stood in opposition to an altar built to the true God would be false gods that would decorate false altars. So fitting to that ordinance of building an altar to God was the removal of false gods. This means, then, that in our worship, whatever the nature of that ordinance is will determine the nature of our preparation and examination. We will remove that which is contrary to and in opposition to that ordinance. Then turn with me to Exodus chapter 19, where we have the special preparation that was to be made at the giving of the law. We read in verses 10 and 11. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. And be ready against the third day, for the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. Now we'll not go into the many lessons and figures and types that are here, But you see, there was a preparation toward the third day, the day of resurrection, of new beginning, of life. And it was to be in a sanctification of the people in which they were to set themselves apart from all things, especially all authorities and laws, for the reception of the law of God that would be given to them on that third day. Now, in some conjunction with this, turn to 2nd Chronicles. 2nd Chronicles, where we have further instruction in chapter 30, where we are shown that it is not enough to have personal qualification for an ordinance, but there must be special preparation. In 2nd Chronicles chapter 30, verses 18 through 20, we read, For a multitude of the people, even many of Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves. Yet did they eat the Passover otherwise than it was written. But Hezekiah, the good king, prayed for them, saying, The Lord pardon everyone that prepareth his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he be not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And the Lord hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. Now here a people had not set themselves in order as God commanded for the Passover, wherein, if it had not been for the intervention of the good king Hezekiah praying for them, the wrath of God would have come down upon them because they did not do things as it was written. Now you will note he names these people. These were the people of God. What is he telling us here? He's telling us that the people might have thought it enough to come to a solemn worship from the very fact of their personal qualification as being the people of God. These were Israel, but they did not come with special preparation. As we approach any ordinance, we cannot simply approach that ordinance with the presupposition, well, I'm a child of God, I'm a Christian. I know Christ is my Savior. Whereas there is personal qualification for coming to the ordinance of the supper, we must be the people of God. It is not a table for unbelievers. There is also an instituted preparation where the people of God Prepare themselves for that ordinance, else God will smite them. It's very simple. I want you to turn to Romans and see the sensitiveness of the Apostle Paul in this matter, as recorded in Romans chapter 15, verses 30 and 31. Paul says, Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, and for the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers in God for me. Now why did this apostle, the chief of the apostles, want the people to strive in prayer for him? Look at it. That I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, and that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints. Now, what was Paul going to do? He had taken up a collection from the churches for the poor saints in Jerusalem who were being persecuted. He was now about to go down to Jerusalem and deliver that money for their well-being. Now, if you and I had done some deputation work and had gone around and raised an attaché case full of money, I don't know that we'd have Paul's spirit, that is, come back before the church and say, Listen, brethren, I've got to take this money and deliver it to a bunch of saints over in Mississippi who've been wiped out, who are being deprived of everything and they're under great persecution. I want you to pray. Strive with me in prayer, that God will keep me from bodily harm and then make my gift acceptable to those saints. We'd come back open that suitcase say, Boy, look at the money I've got. I have $10,252.26. Don't you know that's going to be something? Won't they rejoice? Isn't that great? Isn't that great? And off we would go, you know. All the confidence in the world. And it'd serve us right if somebody took that attitude case away from us on the way. Paul was simply going to deliver some money to some needful saints. And here he comes before the church and prepares himself in solemn worship. Pray for me. Pray that this might be acceptable with the saints there. You and I couldn't think of it as not being acceptable with the saints when we come down and say, Listen, brother, I've raised enough money to feed you for another month. But he was awfully sensitive in this matter, you see. Why? Because it was a matter that pertained to God. Now look at another scripture, Ecclesiastes, where the preacher is talking to us. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and beginning with verse 1, he says, and this needs to be underlined with a big circle put around it in your Bible, and we need to keep this always in view. Because here's some wise instruction. He says, Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. That is, you keep your ways, take take knowledge of your ways and of your affections when you go to the house of God. And boy, here is one of the statements that slaps us all in the face, Be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Here the preacher says, a bold venturing upon any ordinance of God becomes the sacrifice of fools. Now, if you want to know what that is, look at verse 2. Be not rash with thy mouth, be more ready to hear. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. Man, that means that we slow down on on hollering out our praise the Lord, praise the Lord. One preacher told another, preacher, praise the Lord's not an exclamation point, because no matter what anybody said, he'd say, Praise the Lord, you know. Well, that's not an exclamation point. You get up and say, Well, old Ned dying went to hell. Praise the Lord. They don't even hear what you're saying. Granny's grits weren't done this morning. Praise the Lord, you see. Just an exclamation point. Totally meaningless. So he said, Don't be rash with your mouth, and let not thine heart be hasted to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven and thou art upon the earth. Therefore let thy words be few. He's talking about the assembly, the ordinance. So he said, when you come to the house of God, be ready to listen, be slow to speak. And then in Psalm 26, and we'll take up another thought, but Psalm 26, so that you might see the word of God admonishes us of the necessity of preparation for the house of God and for any ordinance, Psalm 26. 26 and verse 1. Judge me, O Lord, for I have walked in mine integrity. I have trusted also in the Lord, therefore I shall not slide. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. Let us note now in the second place, not only does the Bible admonish us to preparation in any sort of solemn assembly or worship, but that there is a general preparation that respects all ordinances with reference to God, to ourselves, and to the ordinance itself. First of all, there must be a general preparation of ourselves, and this is what Paul means by examining ourselves with respect unto God. We are always to consider God first and foremost, and that he has laid down the great law of his ordinance. Now, any ordinance, whether it be the supper, baptism, whether it be preaching or solemn worship, is going to be meaningless unless we are thoroughly prepared and convicted that this is God's ordinance, that we are observing his will, his law. So in Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 3, God commands in worship that I will be sanctified. He says. Now, in order to sanctify God in the observance of any ordinance, three things must be noted. First of all, it consists in a due consideration of God as the author of the ordinance itself. In other words, We are to abstain from what God does not command. We are to only obey in the things which God does command. If we observe then any ordinance, we must first of all sanctify God in that ordinance as being its author. If it is not of the law, then we have no responsibility whatsoever to it. We must be sure then that we are not simply observing some doctrine or tradition of man. As a result of this, there will be a practical sense of the authority of God in every ordinance that is required of us as we prepare for our participation in it. In Romans chapter 11, we have a statement that not many people realize is found in Romans, or excuse me, Romans chapter 14. We are always to have a special apprehension concerning God in any ordinance we prepare ourselves for so that our communion will be with him in that ordinance. To do this, two things are necessary. We must first of all bring to our mind and keep in our thoughts the presence of God. The very moment we lose a sense of the presence of God in our worship, in our ordinance, the ordinance merely becomes an empty symbol with no meaning. I think at this place it's only fair that I should say to this congregation that whereas I am a Baptist, I am not a Zwinglian when it comes to the communion. I am a Calvinist, and whereas I am not a Lutheran who believes in the consubstantiation of the ordinance or the omnipresence of the human nature of Christ in the ordinance, nor am I a papist who believes in transubstantiation that the elements are converted into the flesh and blood of the Son of God. I am not a Zwinglian who simply looks upon it as a symbol and nothing more than a symbol. Rather, I stand with Calvin and the Puritans that when the ordinance is rightly observed, though it is not converted into the flesh and blood of the Son of God, nor is the presence of the humanity carried in those elements, there is a special presence of God attending to the ordinance as a means of grace in the sustaining of his people whereby they spiritually are strengthened. It is not a mere symbol. There is the presence of God. The presence of God. At this point, I'm not a traditional Baptist. Because the supper is far more than just a symbol that you take and leave, and once it's over, it's over. As the gospel is no mere symbol but a means of grace which God uses for the strengthening of his people and the conversion of sinners. So the supper, when rightly observed, carries with it a special, gracious presence of God, wherein we become strengthened in our graciousness. That's why I'm a Reformed Baptist, because that's the Reformed position. And that's more of the biblical position. The average fundamentalist Baptist has never really approached the Lord's table and walked away from it with a sense of its real meaning. He's eaten a few salty cracker crumbs and some Welch's grape juice, which in the first place is not God's way, and they might as well have had cornbread and buttermilk. That's not what Christ instituted, nor what He set up. I don't know what the church did before Mister Welch came along with his pasteurization of grape juice. And some people are so spiritually and heavenly-minded they ain't no earthly good. So when you serve the supper right, they become offended because uh, you use what the Bible commands, and that is wine. Anything other than that is leavened, and leavening being a symbol of sin, does not symbolize the sinless perfection of the Son of God. You remember when Elijah went against the prophets of Baal? The one thing that he taunted them with was the absence of their God in their ordinance. Where is your God, Elijah said? You have prayed, you have scored your body, you've jumped up and down, you've foamed at the mouth, you've shed your own blood, he's not answered you. Perhaps you never know. He might be on the back side of heaven visiting with another god, and so he couldn't hear you today. Or have you ever thought he might be on a journey, he's too far away? Or he could have gone fishing, who knows? The very thing that verified and authenticated the ordinance that was established by Elijah, was the presence of God who answered with fire. Therefore, we must always be mindful of the presence of God. John Owen said, and I think you ought to memorize this, And John Owen, of course, one of my favorite persons. He was Chancellor of Oxford University. He was advisor to Oliver Cromwell and a mighty preacher. He said, All images and idols are set up but to feign the presence of what is really absent. Let me give that to you again. John Owen said that all images and idols are set up but to feign or to pretend the presence of what is really absent. You see, beloved, the reason you and I can assemble in a building of such simplicity whose walls are not decorated with images to remind us externally of religious matters. And the reason we need not come and bow before high altars and celebrate our Lord's Supper in the presence of images is because of his presence. A wife need not take from her wallet a picture of her family and say, Have you ever seen my family when they're in her presence? It is only because of the great absence of the presence of God that men begin to find it necessary to try and erect an image of him something to remind them that he might once have been in their ordinances. But where God is present, we can meet in simplicity, because the elements ordained of him become sufficient to manifest the truth. No wonder the Puritans smashed the images from the altars and placed the pulpit back into the center to draw the attention to the preaching of the Word and put the table out in the presence of the people because it's the Lord's table and it's the table to whom the Lord's people come and celebrate his presence. Not a high altar to which the people are cut off, access being given only to the, quote, clergy. Where is your God, Elijah said? Maybe he's gone fishing. So when they left, they had an altar still standing commemorating the absence of their God, so that when Elijah departed, there was no altar left, commemorating the presence of his God as a consuming fire. There must then be a special sense of the omnipresence of God, Jacob said, the Lord is in this place. The Lord is in this place. Therefore, to every ordinance I go, God is in that place. And it is a sense of the presence of God as I go to and from his ordinances and in and out my business in keeping of his will. That keeps me from all surprises. If there is calamity, if there is a broken arm, if there is disaster, we can always say, the Lord is in this place. We are not taken by surprise. God is present. But we are to remember that beyond the omnipresence of God is the glorious presence of God manifested at those special occasions. A special presence of God is always temporary and not lasting. we assemble for the preaching of the Word. We come and we break bread in commemoration of his broken body and drink the cup in remembrance of his death, and God chooses a special presence that's only temporary. And it will not be there any longer than there is that special communion which we have with the Lord God Almighty. But for that presence we should look and we should prepare as we bring ourselves together in the name of God. And then in the third place, not only are we to remember the presence of God, or in the second place, but we are to consider his holiness. This is the general rule that God will give us for all ordinances. Be ye holy, for I am the Lord your God, I am holy. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, we read in verses 28 and 29, Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Now watch what he says, For our God, is a consuming fire that's his holiness and then thirdly we must respect god as he is the end of all ordinances in other words we seek his glory first and foremost in all that we do then secondly and i will mention these next two points briefly there is to be preparation with respect to ourselves. And there are three things which I desire that my heart may be prepared in reference to the ordinance of God. The first is indispensably necessary and is laid down in his word in Psalm 66 and verse 18 where he says that if I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me, which means that we must not regard any particular iniquity in our heart. Look at Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 4. Therefore speak unto them and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Every man of the house of Israel that setteth up his idols in his heart, see where they're set up, and cometh to the prophet, I the Lord will answer him that cometh and I want you to underscore this thought, according to the multitude of his idols. Any man that sets up idols in his heart, comes to me in worship, I will answer him according to those idols. How does he do this? John Owen called this scripture to attention and he comments by saying, There is no more effectual course in the world to make poor souls incorrigible beyond correction than to come to ordinances and to be able to digest under them a regard to iniquity in our hearts. If we have idols, God will answer us according to our idols. What is answering of men according to their idols? Why, plainly it's this, allotting them peace while they have idols. You shall have peace with regard to iniquity. You come for peace, take peace, which is the saddest condition any soul can be left under. You shall have peace and your idols together, both together. Whenever we prepare ourselves, if this part of our preparation be wanting, if we do not all of us cast out the idols of our hearts and cease regarding of iniquity, all is lost. The second part of our own preparation is self-abasement. Self-abasement. Getting fixed in our minds that distinction between creator and creature. That we are the creatures of God. Isaiah 57, verse 15, God says the place he dwells is in the heart of a humble and contrite man. You come asserting your own dignity and well-being and God will not visit with you. And so a heart must also love the ordinance, because it's only that you love that you will participate in in the right disposition. And then finally, our preparation is with reference to the ordinance itself. There must be a satisfactory persuasion of the institution of the ordinance itself by the will of God and appointed to us for its celebration. Now, I know some in independent and fundamental circles who even claim that they're Baptists who do not practice the Lord's Supper. They're so dispensational that that was for another time. I know others who don't even practice baptism because they're so dispensational that, too, was for another time. So, you see, if you're not persuaded in your heart that this is God's order, that it has been set up and instituted by him, you will not rightly participate in it. And then it must be performed in due manner, the way God has ordained. You can see this from 1st Chronicles when David recaptured the ark. Now, David put that ark on one of the finest carts the king could provide. Now, who could complain about that? That ark being on a fine cart, being taken back to its resting place. But a man got killed in the process. And it scared David. And he left the ark right where it was, at at a man's house. And that man was blessed with blessings upon blessings. Until David inquired how he might ought ought to get the ark to Jerusalem. He was informed there's only one way. God never ordained his ark to be driven in a hearse. You can't build a fine enough cart to carry it. It had to be carried on sticks of wood on the shoulders of the Levites. So when the Levites went down and put these sticks of wood into the ring and put it on their shoulders, God blessed and the ark came home was a blessing to the people of God. God has his ways, and we have to observe his ways. Our Father, we thank thee that as an unworthy and humble people who have no claims upon these great mercies which are here set forth, may come together to this solemn occasion and commemorate the death of the Son of God till he come again. We pray that thou wilt call to our remembrance that which was involved in our redemption through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.